It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. We're in a golden age for organized crime and corruption, according to the people who keep an eye on these problems. Technological innovations like cryptocurrency have given criminals new tools for covering their tracks. And after decades of activity, bad actors have built up tangled webs of enablers and resources. We've seen a new class of criminals that we call the criminal angel investors. These are really criminals who made it, who have at their disposal hundreds of billions and are ready to finance new crime. The Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project has reporters and editors on every continent who are following the money and tracing it back to the guilty parties. Then they help us connect the dots on how that corruption is chipping away at democracy, human rights, and quality of life. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the 2022 Aspen Ideas Festival. You'll hear from Drew Sullivan and Paul Radu, both from the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, as well as Bill Browder, a foreign investor who has been fighting to expose corruption in Russia for almost two decades. Mary Louise Kelly, the co-host of NPR's All Things Considered, moderates the conversation. Here's Kelly. So this is a conversation that could have been timely at any moment, but I want you to start by just thinking about the moment where we are as we gather as we enter the fifth month of war in Ukraine, a war that has rightly riveted the world and which has prompted questions, among other things, about the man who started it, about Vladimir Putin. Um, Why is he doing this? What is he up to? Why is he pursuing a policy that to the outside looks supremely destructive, not just to the country he invaded, but to his own? Why is he doing it? I will speak for all the journalists in the room and say that it is rarely boring to follow the money. It's rarely easy, but rarely boring. Um, And so that's where we're going to start tonight. Uh, We're going to go beyond Vladimir Putin. But that's a story that these two have tracked for their work. It's a story that you, Bill, have lived. Um, And I want to begin with a particular story, which is how the three of you came to know each other, because you knew each other already. Um, Bill, their work intersected with your life. We'll start with the story, but it has to do with trying to track down who killed your Russian lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky. So um, uh, I should point out that these two gentlemen um, are heroes in my book. And so when you uh, read Freezing Order, you'll learn about their heroism. And and, um, so... uh, and actually, let me start from the top and then, then come back. Okay. So why, why, are, why, are, why is Putin um, invading Ukraine? Uh, I, I believe, and, and um, I think these, uh, my friends here probably believe as well, that it all comes down to corruption. So Vladimir Putin has stolen an unbelievable amount of money. He's stolen from the Russian state. I should say he and the thousand people around him over the last... 22 years since Putin has been in power, has stolen a trillion dollars from the Russian state. And um, how do we know he's stolen a trillion dollars? Well, that's where these two people come in. Uh, The the wonderful thing about um, uh, corruption is that it always leaves an indelible trail. That the moment that you steal money and you transfer money, there is a bank record of it. And the other great thing that's happened over the last um, decade or so is that all this information that everybody thought was secret um, turns out that it isn't secret, that all sorts of bank records are actually leaked in different ways. And the way I learned about it um, uh, was from Paul. Uh, We were looking into my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, was murdered by the Russian government in 2009. And after his murder, I made it my life's work to go after the people that killed him. And one of the things I wanted to know was um, who got the money that Sergei Magnitsky had exposed and was killed over. And we, uh, in, in, inside of Russia, there is a, um, uh, there's no such thing as, as um, data protection. You can go and 
um, you're, there's actually information market. And, and if I wanted to know any of your salaries, bank account balances, um, mobile phone records, or health records, I could go and buy that for a very small amount of money. And so after Sergei was killed, we were able to trace some of the money that he was killed over um, through different Russian banks. But once the money left Russia, which it always does, we didn't know where the money went after that. And um, this was around, I guess, 2000, 2000, uh, 2011. Um, we discovered this scrappy little organization. I think there must have been about three people working there, headquartered in Bucharest. In Sarajevo. In Sarajevo. So you think when you hear like some, some anti-money laundering organization headquartered in Bucharest or Sarajevo, you'd think of it as actually a money laundering organization. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy calls us up and he says, well, you know, we're, we're looking into money laundering and we have access to some interesting things. And, and um, he had access to a database um, in Moldova. So the, the money that Sergei Magnitsky was killed over went from Russia to Moldova, and he had the access to the database of all these Moldovan bank transfers. And once we had the access to that, we could then figure out where the money went to after that. And we started tracing the money after that. We started filing criminal complaints with different law enforcement agencies. And we ended up, again, through some other, another leak called the Russian laundromat that the OCCRP came up with, um, tracking the money to all sorts of places to buy fancy stuff in the UK and France and so on and so forth. And every time we'd find the money, we would open, we would get the um, law enforcement agencies of the country to open a criminal investigation. And we got the Department of Justice to open a criminal investigation here in the UK, in the US because we found about a bunch of money going into, um, uh, into Manhattan real estate. And then the bad guys fought back and they started making all sorts of propaganda movies about me and about Sergei Magnitsky. The bad guys are the Kremlin? The, the Kremlin. And they made a movie, and, um, and they showed it in Washington at the Museum, the Museum of Free Speech. Yes, I was and, there. And Drew was there, and um, I was really worried that, that like, everyone in Washington would be convinced by this propaganda, by this Russian propaganda. And, and he acted as a sort of um, voice of truth in, a, in this very public setting and, and was able to challenge the propaganda movie. And so we wouldn't have found the money if it hadn't been for the OCCRP, uh, Paul and Drew. Um, and we wouldn't have been able to defend the truth of the story if it hadn't been for Drew in, in Washington. I found myself arguing with Seymour Hirsch, which was like, oh, this is what I've come to, arguing with Seymour Hirsch. And, and so it's all, it's, all, it's all described perfectly in much better detail than I've just explained to you in my book. Um, but these guys are true heroes, and, and um, we wouldn't have been able to expose Putin, expose the, the massive crimes that... that well, that was before, before we heard Drew and Paul's end of this, where did the money trail lead? To Putin. Directly, personally. So, Not just uh, uh, the so, Kremlin, but Putin. Well, so, so let me explain to you how it works. So Putin doesn't keep any money in his own name. Um, because there's no, bank, there's no bank statement that says Vladimir Putin on it or any property, property register that says Vladimir Putin on it, because if it did, then somebody could go and say, um, uh, Vladimir, uh, I'm going to show this to the New York Times and to everyone else unless you give me X, Y, and Z. And Putin is a guy who spent his whole life blackmailing people, and so he doesn't want that happening to him, and so he has got to have people who stand in front of him. And um, I think some of you may remember the Panama Papers. This was um, one of the first big data leaks. And, um, and the Panama Papers, when it came out, it, it, so it was the, a Panamanian law firm called Masak Fonseca um, had all of their details leaked online. And, and each country had a, had a hero or an anti-hero. And in Russia, there was this guy who was a, a cellist who was worth $2 billion based on the Panama Papers. Yo-Yo Ma is, is the richest cellist that we knew about before that, and he was worth 25 million. And so there's a cellist, his name is Sergei Roldugin, he was worth $2 billion. <clears throat> How does a cellist get $2 billion? Why does a cellist get $2 billion? And, and by the way, he, he, uh, uh, 
Uh, and, and Putin justified it saying he bought and sold a lot of Stradivariuses, and we and we we did the math, and we figured <laughs> a that, lot of <laughs> we, we figured he would have to, have to like buy and sell like the the total population of Stradivariuses a hundred times in the world to get to two billion dollars, but but the the the, the so the, the, but the Panama Papers showed that all these oligarchs were, were like like giving him fifty million dollars as an investment advisory fee to a cellist yeah. for an, like a major investment advice, or a state bank would lend him money and then like forgive the loan and, yeah. and so on and so forth. And so all this money was going to him. But why would why would anyone give money to a cellist? And the answer is that this guy was Putin's best friend from childhood. He was the godfather of Putin's daughter. He introduced Putin to his first wife, and he was Putin's nominee. He was. And and uh, uh, and again, that came out of the work that, that these guys did, and so so that that's how Putin gets the money. Um, and let me just finish off because I think these guys need a bit of airtime. Um, the uh, when we started pulling on the strings, we we found so Sergei Magnitsky was killed over over um, uh, the theft of uh, over exposing the theft of two hundred thirty million dollars, and we found that all that money went to a uh, Danish bank called Danske Bank uh, to their Estonian branch. And then we started cooperating with some, some Danish journalists that were part of the OCCRP. And they, they said, well, we have this thing called the Russian laundromat database, and we'd like to see how your 200 million, how the companies that laundered the 200, 200 million um, were connected to our database. And they discovered that it wasn't just 200 million that was laundered through this D Danish bank. Um, uh, it was 8.3 billion, um, and this is one Danish bank, the Estonian branch of one Danish bank. Now, Denmark is supposed to be the, I think it, on the Transparency International Index, it is the second most honest country in the world, in theory. And so the head of this bank couldn't just leave it at that, he had to like do some kind of proper investigation. So they hired a law firm and an accounting firm, and they let them go over all the records, and they discovered that it, that it wasn't and this is Russian laundered money, they discovered it wasn't 8.3 billion, it was $232 billion had been laundered through Dansky Bank, Estonia. Hmm. And so if you were to sort of lift the lid on Raiffeisen Bank and Deutsche Bank and UBS and, and other banks, I believe you'd get a number closer to $1 trillion, which is, that's where my estimate of the, yeah. of the Putin corruption comes from. All right, so you two pick up your end. Had you been looking for a way to crack open the door and go after Putin, you were looking for that opportunity, um, and he what walks through your door? How did it happen? So, uh, if I may, um, so what happened was um, by 2009, 2010, we got a little bit bored with our investigative reporting, and that was because you know you investigate all this corruption and you know organized crime schemes, and they all look similar. It's boring. It's always the offshore. It's always the bank. It's always the billion. It's always but the same kind of setup. So we were wondering, what's behind all this? What's the infrastructure that allows for all this to happen? So we went after banking records. And at first, it wasn't a leak. At first, we actually went via courts. In some courts, in some countries, you can access the complete court cases, and you get the banking records from there that are subpoenaed from banks by the police, by various other agencies. So we got access to one of those court cases where you had uh, money transfers in the tune of about 700, 800 million US dollars. And we looked at that, this bank, uh, banking record, you know, that was for two years, you know, worth of banking in it. And me and Drew were like, this is nuts. Because what we've seen with that money was that in one bank account, in one single bank account, you had the Sinaloa drug cartel from Mexico, one of the most violent in the world. Vietnamese organized crime transacting money through the same bank account. Russian organized crime. Romanian organized crime. Everybody was in that single bank account. So, and, and, and Russian state uh, companies and Ukrainian state companies. And, and it was like, what's going on here? So we didn't want uh, you know, to be like loonies, you know, to, to, to tell the world this is a huge conspiracy and look, these people are all working together because they, wor they weren't working together. What happened was we came across the system. The system was set up by specialized money launderers who wanted to do money laundering in bulk who are a sort of a Walmart you know, of money laundering, a, an Uber of money laundering in the sense that they took down the price of money laundering from 18, 20% that was in the 80s in, uh, to 0.2%. But they needed volume. 
So what they did was they created these money laundering opportunities where you see these amounts that Bill was mentioning, you know, the hundreds of billions and potential, uh, uh, I mean, a lot more. Because what we, what we were able to investigate through sheer banking records and all, it's small compared to what's actually going on, uh, you know, uh, in and this. Bill said something that I think is interesting, and I wonder if you would pick it up, Drew, that, that once the money left Russia, it got harder to right. track. I would have thought it was the opposite. No, because uh, what happens is it starts going into this uh, international system where it's all going through offshores. So you, you may have a Latvian bank account, but it's owned by a BVI company, you know, uh, operated by somebody who okay. is from somewhere else. Okay. And so- Layer after layer after- Exactly. Shell. Okay. And, and when we got something like, you know, the Panama Papers, as we started going through it, you get pieces of these puzzles and you can't, they kind of end at an offshore and you have to kind of stitch them together over time. We still do Panama Papers stories, even though that was out, you know, what, eight years ago, um, because we're, 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 you know, we're finding another part of it and connecting it. And so that's what you really have to do. And, you know, there, there are places like Latvia, which became the large kind of money laundering, Estonia as well, the, the main money laundering area for Russia. That's where all the money got into the European Union. That's where all the yachts were, were bought from and that's where all the you know, expensive properties in Monaco. You know, it all was kind of laundered through these, these known avenues and then it was just figuring out the banks and you know, we, we, we got three Latvian banks closed you know, by our stories ourselves, but yeah. there's about five more out there that, that you know, we, we haven't gotten into yet. So. And just in the last few days, y'all broke a big story. Right. This is Putin's dacha, a dacha of Putin's under construction. What's the story? Yeah, so, so this is very interesting. What, what we actually discovered, because, you know, we're again always looking for the system. We're trying to understand how the system works. And we discovered this company. Well, it wasn't a company. It was called LLC Invest, um, dot RU. And it, it seemed to be... The only thing that it is tangibly is it's a mail server. Um, however, um, it- And is it, that, sorry to interrupt, but when you say we discovered it, how do you discover, like how do you- We, how we, you we discovered it? it by having gone through so many assets, we kept seeing this name. Okay. And then as we, when, when we, you know, we remember names and, and, you know, eventually there was enough instances where you said, this is interesting, this is important. Okay. And what we actually discovered is that this was a mail system that people used to send mail messages to each other. And we got a leak, somebody gave us the mail systems, some of the emails and, and some of the logs of this mail system. And what we noted is that every single one of Putin's known assets, the person who managed it used this LLCinvest.ru. Um, and then there was a bunch of other assets uh, that were not that were not connected. We didn't think were connected to Putin, but as we started looking at them, they were his ex-girlfriends, they were his daughters, they were his son-in-laws, they were other people, not Roldugan, but other, you know, friends of his youth um, that were owning these properties. And then the typical uh, proxies for Putin, Timchenko, you know, the the big oligarchs um, that often hold his assets. And what we realized is all of these discussions were by people who seemingly had no, um, no real relationship, no business relationship, but they were talking about these assets in very unusual ways. And, and then we found that previously a, a whistleblower had claimed that they had set up a virtual company for Putin um, and uh, that that company, um, once it was identified, closed down. Um, and so we think that this is one of Putin's um, kind of hidden ways that they manage. And it was all based on, it was all operated through people who were employees of Bank Rosia, which is the bank, it's known as Putin's bank, um, and it's believed to do a lot of the, the work for Putin. And so consequently, it just all fit together as this was a management system for Putin's wealth. It's probably not the only system. It wasn't his foreign assets, it was just his Russian assets, his giant mansion, his, um, you know, his, his, his ski lodge, and then this fisherman's hut, which, you know, would, would, you know, people in Aspen would say, wow, you know. <laughs> the fisherman's hut. Was, yes, yeah. it, this is not a fisherman's hut. This is a pretty amazing place. Um, but that was one of the assets that was being managed by this LLC Invest. So, um, again, we, we think it's probably a Putin um, management, money management system. Because, you know, Putin, he doesn't, he doesn't take his car keys or his wallet in the morning when he gets up. You know, he's one of those people. 
and he's got a whole bank that manages his assets and, and arranges all this, and this seemed to be the people, the conversations they were having were indicative of people who were managing assets for someone like Putin. Bill, I'm thinking of how the technology is in a different universe than, say, when Sergei Magnitsky died and you were starting to investigate that. How has that made it easier, made it harder? I mean, I'm thinking of cryptocurrency. How is that impacting all of this? So, so what these guys have um, discovered is um, the, the pipe of, for money laundering. And, um, and the pipe was, I mean, it's, it, it's, that, that's a simple word and it's, much, it's dramatically complicated. If I put up a, a chart of how it, how it actually worked, um, there, there's so many different lines and structures and offshores and this and that. It, it's truly, truly complicated. And, and, but, and, and it's so complicated, in fact, that they had to invest so much time and energy and money in setting it up. That's why they needed to use it for, in, on a, in a, for, all these, for all these different groups and people, et cetera. But once the pipe was exposed, um, it kind of created a problem because all of a sudden, all of the, the places that they used were no longer usable. So you, um, uh, it used to be that like, you could set up in Estonia, um, you could go to a bank and set up an account for a BVI or a UK company and launder all sorts of money through that. And they've shut, they've shut down all offshore company banks and banking accounts in Estonia. Latvia has gone from being like the most lenient place to being the, probably the, the, the most prosecuting place in the Baltics. The Cyprus is no longer available. And so everything that used to be the, the um, that used to be their opportunity for laundering money is no longer there. So um, what, one could say, well, maybe they've stopped laundering money, but of course they haven't. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the crimes continue, the money, the money stealing continues. This is what any, any person who goes into Russian government um, goes into Russian government to steal money. They don't, go to, they don't go into the government to serve the people. They go into government to steal the money. Um, but maybe the pie has, has now shrunk because things are a little tougher, but they're still stealing money on a large scale. So what, is it a different pipe, a new well, so, pipe? So, so, that they come, so yeah, so, so now all of a sudden, um, these guys have, have compromised the previous system, so they've got to come up with a new system. And um, you know, there's all these um, libertarians out there sort of um, praising cryptocurrencies, um, but from my perspective as a um, person trying to shut down money laundering, um, you know, if you try to take more than $10,000 cash out of a bank, you practically get arrested unless you like, write an essay about why it's legitimate that you're doing it. But you can, you can um, take $10 million of crypto, of, of Bitcoin, and put it on a floppy disk and hand it to a friend, and that's all fine. And of course, that, that, I, I don't know whether that's how they're doing it. I, I mean, maybe you guys have a theory about how, how it's actually working, but I would imagine that with Cyprus, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania shut down. Um, the art market now, the art was a good way of, of moving money. Um, but now all of a sudden you have to register art. Um, you need to find another way if you're a bad guy. And, and I would imagine that, that cryptocurrencies are a great way of doing it. Uh, yeah, I mean, crypto, crypto is the, the new way. Um, and um, we've seen criminals, because uh, you know, we investigate crime and corruption for a long time. And we've seen criminal groups adopting crypto and setting up exchanges and mining operations, large scale, you know, crypto type of operations, uh, 10 years ago or more. So these people are at it for a very, very long time. And lately what's going on is that you see properties sold as NFTs, for instance. Uh, there are apartments, mansions sold as NFTs. But what, what happens is the NFT is the records the, the, uh, of that apartment, of that property itself, that is registered to a Cayman uh, uh, Island company or a Cyprus company. So that becomes the NFT. And when the property is sold, the, the transaction is not recorded locally in the property registry, but it's recorded in the ledger, in the blockchain only. So property exchanges hands without any proper kind of um, documents being put together. So this is a great way to bypass systems 
and to go for large-scale money laundering, bribing of the politicians, uh, and so on. What we say all, uh, always is that uh, criminals are always early tech adopters. And <laughs> it's true. Uh, Putin, uh, I mean, and we're seeing Iranian criminals doing this large, large scale, and they are always connected to the state. Chinese criminals connected to the state doing the same in the hundreds of billions. And they're, of course, big when it comes to crypto as well. But it's not just that. It's, uh, we've seen a new class of criminals that we call the criminal angel investors. These are really criminals who made it, who have at their disposal hundreds of billions and are ready to finance new crime. So there are many criminal startups where uh, people are picked because they have criminal records, uh, there's court cases on their names, they were very su successful smuggling stuff, uh, you know, or doing the bidding of uh, countries like Iran. So these people are chosen, are selected to be financed by these criminal angel investors. And we're seeing this more and more. But the interesting thing about this is that when you look at the 70s and the 80s, when you study crime and corruption, you see that it's all connected. I mean, the criminals that are now uh, really successful are the offspring of those successful criminals many years ago. So you see this, you know, this continuum in crime that breeds more crime. And with uh, the, the fact that the, the criminals went global some, some years ago, you know, this, is, this goes uh, in the up and up and you know, chips at democracy processes and it has a huge effect on, on, on business as well. Huh. All right, so that's how tech has made criminals adapt new pipelines, new ways of moving their money. What about your end trying to track them? Technologies change that too, without giving away all the tricks of your trade. Tell us something well, you can do now that you couldn't have done 10 years ago. Yeah, so we, we, we've built our own knowledge management system. You know, we're, we're about the third tech people in, in our organization. Um, and we've built a thing we call Aleph, and uh, Aleph, contains uh, somewhere between three and four billion entities related to organized crime and corruption. And what we are are essentially data junkies. Um, as, as Bill mentioned, you know, you could go onto Moscow Street and buy databases. Well, we bought about 3,000 of them, <laughs> you know, and, and collected those. And then uh, this is the golden age of leaks. Um, people are leaking everything. Um, and we collect every single one. We go online where there's been ransomware, and that data is out there, and we download that. And we download everything, and we basically mine it for um, these criminals um, to be able to follow them around um, wherever they're going. And you know, because they use proxies, they use all sorts of different, they're very complicated organizations, um, you, you need to kind of build maps of these, the structures of these organizations. And so when you're looking for someone, we're, we're doing an asset tracking of, um, Russian assets right now of oligarchs. Um, you have to find all the family members. You have to find all the business associates. You have to find out all the staff of, of you know who work with them. Uh, and then you have to find old friends. And then you basically go through this iterative process, which we've now you know basically used databases to do that. Um, and you mine all this and you bring it out. And then eventually it goes back to an investigative reporter who has to look at it and try to figure out exactly what they're doing. Hmm. Now these, these, people, these people are audacious. You, you cannot understand the, the amazing, this, this is Elon Musk, except he can kill. You, know? you have to think that way. And, and that's literally who these people are. And they come up with brilliant ideas um, to do just you know, amazing things. And, and you, you just kind of, you have to be in awe. You know? they, they, they need, they need to launder money, they buy a bank. They just take a whole bank and then when they're done with it, they just loan all the money in the bank to themselves and walk away, you know? Um, this is the kind of you know, business they do and they're working simultaneously in dozens of countries. Um, and so consequently, you know, there, there should be, we, we need about 20 OCCRPs, you know, we're, we're way overtaxed on this. And, we're probably the world's largest investigative reporting organization. We're on every single continent on Earth and have 180 people. We have about 60 investigative editors. Most news organizations have won. And we're getting probably a half a percent of what's going on out there. I mean, it is, it is also the golden age of um, crime and corruption. And many, you know, there are state actors, you know, 20, 30 years ago, um, there, was, uh, there was this 
kind of globalization of organized crime. And when these Russian oligarchs met London lawyers and bankers, it was a match made in the deepest pits of hell. Um, and they immediately loved each other. And they immediately, this whole system is set up by Western enablers. It's set up by law firms, by banks, you know, Deutsche Bank, you know, HSBC, um, and working with the other corrupt banks that they need in Africa and in other places. And so they've set up this wonderful system. Sorry, I can't let that go by. Deutsche Bank, HSBC, knowingly? I mean, what, oh, yeah. what's the allegation you're laying at? So, so these, but how these banks work is they simply, you cannot not take the money. I mean, this is, this is you know, tens, uh, tens of millions of dollars sometimes a minute that, that's going through on some of these things. They can't leave the money alone because somebody else will take it. So what they end up doing is um, they take it and then when they get caught, which they often do, they simply pay about a $10 million fine. There's not been a single banker um, or lawyer who has ever been charged with any serious crime in any of these money laundering operations in any of these banks. And, and that's the problem. So they get away with it, they pay the fine, and then they go back to launder money again. Um, I can tell you a story about uh, um, some of the largest banks in the world. It was about 2011, and um, I was in Dubai at the World Economic Forum. And uh, I was a member of the Council on Crime and Corruption, together with the head of Interpol and other, other people who are experienced in investigating crime and corruption. And that was the liaison with the Banking Council. So. I was very young back then, and uh, I would go to this council, to these big CEOs of banks, and uh, tell them, look, this is how your banks are used by criminals. This is how they launder the money, you know, uh, huge, huge amounts of money. And they all said, you know, we don't believe you, because uh, we have really good compliance departments, and, you know, our investigators are really the greatest, and this is not possible. In that crowd, there was Deutsche Bank, HSBC, many big, big banks. So 2011. Fast forward to 2016, I believe, um, and I get a call from Deutsche Bank who asked, me to, who asked me to go to London, to their offices there in the city, to train their compliance department on how to, uh, to, to find this type of you know, large-scale you know, uh, usage uh, of their bank by criminals. We also got a hold of, uh, of a report, of an internal report by Deutsche Bank where they actually uh, say, and we um, have this on our website too, this report, where they said, as a result of OCCRP's work, we detected this large-scale crime that happened in our bank and all this. And they, they, they actually named it OCCRP's intelligence, because lots of the criminals, lots of these people believe we are actually you know, CIA or Mossad or whatever, you know, when it's really the work of amazing investigative reporters that I need to mention here, because there's many Russian colleagues that Bill, Bill knows as well and colleagues all over the place who are able to follow the money across borders and that have this mindset, who have this mindset to see where the criminals go and to understand the criminal patterns. But the banks didn't understand at first what was going on. And, and, and the key on that is that the banks were taking individual transactions and saying, is this money laundering? But they couldn't prove a single individual transaction. What we were looking at is all the transactions and they were doing, Deutsche Bank, of course, is famous for its mirrored trades and, and other things. It's the system, it's the, it's the multiple, it's, it's, you have to look at 100 of these transactions to see the money laundering, and they just weren't doing that. Bill, this one's for you. I'm thinking about, until very recently, until this year with the invasion of Ukraine, if Vladimir Putin had wanted to walk into this ballroom in Aspen, he was free to do so. He was free to travel the world, show up at summits, go, despite all of this, I'm asking this respectfully of all of you, but kind of to what, like what counts as success in this world? If you have all this evidence, you have the bank accounts, you can trace it all. Why, whether it's Putin or his buddies, his ex-girlfriend, why are they all walking around? Well, so the, um, uh, there's this huge disconnect between what we know, what these guys have proven, and then what's happened as a result of that. Mm -hmm. So, um, so coming back to the, the numbers, a trillion dollars stolen from, from the Russian people, probably like a quarter of that has gone into the city of London. And there has not been one single um, or, uh, economic crime prosecution by the law enforcement of the UK since Vladimir Putin came to power. Not one single one. Um, 
And in fact, we know exactly this situation because on the Magnitsky money, we, we, did, we, we put, this, put together the full dossier. We know where all the money went. And every time we find a country where it went, we file a criminal complaint with law enforcement agencies of that country. And I think we found 24 countries, 16 of them opened money laundering investigations, a number of them froze assets. The largest recipient was the UK. Um, we, uh, uh, we filed criminal complaints with the Serious Fraud Office, the, the Serious Organized Crime Agency, the Metropolitan Police, the, the National Crime Agency, um, the Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, um, uh, the Financial Conduct Authority, Every single one of them rejected our application to open a criminal case. Um, it's, it's harder to get a criminal case opened against Russian criminals in, in the UK than it is to get into Harvard Law School. Um, and uh, in fact, I was uh, there, one of the people who I had, I had written an application to, to um, at the National Crime Agency who wrote me back a rejection letter. Two years later, he came to me uh, after he left the National Crime Agency, which is their version of the FBI, and he said, I'm really, I, I, I want, he took me to lunch, he said, I'm, I want to apologize to you. I wanted to open a case, I thought the evidence was there to do a proper criminal investigation, but I was told not to by my bosses. And when I even resisted them and tried to start the investigation, I was told that I would lose my job if I opened the investigation. And so what we have in the West. Where do you think that pressure is coming from? Well, I think that there's three possibilities, and I can't, I can't prove either, any of these. It's either people not wanting to take career risk, because um, once you do a complicated case and it doesn't work out, your career could be in trouble. It could be politically motivated to say that we don't, uh, we don't want to um, have trouble with Russia. And just think, for example, um, Alexander Litvinenko was murdered with polonium-210. I'm sure most of you know the story. And Theresa May, who was um, the, the home secretary, the sort of top law enforcement person before she became prime minister, um, argued that there shouldn't be an in, uh, uh, a judicial inquest into his murder because it would upset political and, and business relations with Russia. So a, a proper judicial proceeding. She said that in writing in a court. Um, or it could be corruption. It could be that people are paid not to do it. I don't know. I don't know which one of those things. Maybe it's a combination of all three. But. Um, so why, are these, why have these people been allowed to walk around? And by the way, there's a couple of them around Aspen. Um, uh, <laughs> I think Feel free to ask a question if you're out there. We'll open it shortly. I mean, they're not here now, but I think everybody in this room knows about some of the, um, uh, uh, the, the Russians um, who have been in Aspen. And, um, uh, and so why have these people been, been able to walk around and do all this stuff? Because it was good for business. It was good for business, um, and, and I mean, London was just disgusting. The, the, the amount, the number of people who would be, the, law, the top lawyers who would be taking money from Russians to like shut up journalists, to, to terrorize people, to, to set up structures to launder money. There's a whole class of these lawyers and barristers that were, were doing this stuff. You know, they, they would be like terrorizing journalists at day, during the day, and then they would be going with their wives to the Human Rights Watch, you know, fundraiser at night yeah. um, and and uh, uh, and that's why and so you end up in this situation where for you know 22 years Vladimir Putin and the people around him committed the most heinous crimes and we let them off completely and as a result we gave him the full carte blanche to do whatever he wanted to do and what did he decide to do he decided to murder tens of thousands of Ukrainians that are that's happening as we speak yeah. um, I'm gonna open it in a couple minutes to questions but I have one more that speaking to your comment just now about terrorizing journalists, I wonder how each of you think about the personal risk that you take in doing this work, in speaking so publicly about it, um, for yourself, for your family, for your staff. Um, Bill, I know you feel that very keenly. For those of you who have a slot in your schedule tomorrow, your next panel is Vlad the Embezzler, Why Putin Wants Me Dead. Um, which is a catchy title, but I'm sure it doesn't feel very funny when it's you and your family. Um, they, you know, the, 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 the only thing they care about is money. That's the only thing. Money is more valuable than human life. Um, there are a string of dead bodies in, in our case. Sergei Magnitsky, uh, my lawyer, Boris Nemtsov. 
there's a young man named uh, Vladimir Karamorza, who was Boris Nemtsov's protege, who worked with us getting the Magnitsky Act um, passed. He was poisoned um, in Moscow in 2015 and then poisoned again in 2017. He was brave enough to go back to, to Russia even now, and then he was, he's recently arrested and he's in jail right now. Our, the Magnitsky family lawyer was thrown off a five-story building. He survived. Um, and, um, and then many others within the criminal organization. There was a guy who, who whistle blew on the criminal organization, came to us with all the information. Um, he, was, he dropped dead um, outside of, in, a, in a suburb of London at the age of 44, a perfectly healthy guy. I mean, these guys play for keeps, and, um, and I've seen it with my own eyes, and they've come after me, and it's not, not a pleasant situation. Yeah. Do you think about this with your staffers? Have you had issues? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we, we lost a colleague um, in Slovakia. He, him and his uh, fiance were murdered. Um, that was done by uh, an oligarch um, because we were doing follow the money. He was doing follow the money on, on tax fraud that he was doing. And, you know, we ended up making a documentary about it. Our, our philosophy, our, 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 our way we approach this is every time a journalist is jailed or hurt or killed, you know, we'll replace them with 20 more. Uh, and that's the only thing we can do is just basically attack the issue. But, you know, uh, our, our journalists are in danger all over the world. We, we have a pretty sophisticated system, you know, that we use to, um, uh, you know, to deal with these types of threats, including investigating the threat, you know, who kills, how, when, why, you know, and what method, and, and we understand all that going in to who we're dealing with, and then we do a custom design for every single story we do with dangerous people. And we, we, we deal with a lot of organized crime people, and, you know, Serbian mafia, Montenegrin mafia, you know, these are as dangerous as, as um, you know, some of the other people, but they all work together. I mean, they, they literally kill people for the state. You know, the state knows the Serbian state will hire Montenegrin criminals to kill, you know, uh, people that the state doesn't like. And so, you know, it's an it's a extremely dangerous situation and our journalists know the risk and, and, you know, my hats are off to them. I'm, I'm a CIA agent, according to every press account that's been made of me, so, they, which I don't, discourage them from thinking because that offers me a certain amount of protection you know so I let them think that I don't you know um, but but the real danger is you know the reporters on the street in Montenegro the reporters on the street in Belgrade um, it's a really dangerous situation and um, you know they 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 have to look under their car for bombs they have to you know uh, watch who's following them they have to do all these things on a daily basis and they're the real heroes in my book because um, they, they make this all possible, and, and they, they, they do it because this has to be done, and, um, and, and they just do it. I think part of it is also sometimes we don't understand the ramifications of what we're doing. And, uh, you, you know. don't know what you're stepping into until you step. Yeah. yeah so. And it, it's really, our people are amazingly brave. Um, usually what happens when you publish a new investigative, uh, investigative article is before you publish, the people that you write about, oligarchs, criminals, will try to bribe the reporter. And the reporters always call us up, telling us, you know, this is what's going on. Of course, we have our system, to, systems to, to make sure that they're safe. And after that stage, when the reporter refuses the bribe, you know, they start with the threats, legal threats. For that, we put together this libel insurance system, you know, that we're working on uh, to ensure that, you know, if we go to court, we're covered. And London court cases are very, very expensive. I went myself through one for two years, and we spent, how much did we spend for that court case? It was about, we got lucky because we had low bono. It was about 600,000 pounds, which is That's cheap. about $850,000. It's cheap yeah. for a London it's case. Cheap, it's well, cheap. It never but, went to trial. It, 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 yeah. That was before the trial even started. So It's cheap, but for a journalistic organization, yeah. no, that at the time was half of our budget almost. But it's, it's, so. it's, it's worth pointing out that um, in addition to all the murders and death threats, um, the bad guys try to shut, shut up everything yes. through this, through this libel, libel suit Absolutely. stuff. And, and I think it's worth mentioning, since we're here in Aspen, um, that there is, a, there is a, um, an individual who was born in St. Petersburg um, who became a billionaire doing real estate in Moscow um, uh, who bought a piece of property in Aspen 
and it was reported on by the Aspen, is Aspen Daily News, is that? Uh, yes. Aspen Times, Aspen, Aspen Times. Times. And um, uh, he sued them for calling, calling him a Russian oligarch. And um, uh, I, I've, I've now met uh, two, I think two people, two victims uh, here in Aspen um, who have, uh, of this, uh, who basically lost their jobs because of this. Um, so the guy was born in St. Petersburg, made a billion, became a billionaire in Moscow real estate, and calling him a Russian oligarch, he sues, and somehow the journalists are losing their jobs. I mean, it's just shocking. And um, that's happening today, right this minute, as we speak, as we speak. And my friend Catherine Belton, she wrote a book, um, it's called Putin's People. If, if you want to read the definitive account, um, it's like the encyclopedia of how Putin is a crook, read Putin's People. And on the 364 days after it was published, which is the deadline for libel suits, four Russian oligarchs sued her simultaneously in London. And she barely has two pennies to rub together. Roman Abramovich, um, Peter Avin, Michael Friedman, Rosneft, um, and uh, one other one all sued her um, for her book. Uh, and, it was just, and it's just the most remarkable thing. And, and so these are called strategic lawsuits against public participation, slaps. And it's just remarkable. I can't believe that, that in this day and age that it, it's possible and it's allowed for these crooks, for the most part, to be able to shut up um, uh, public discourse through this type of stuff. So now we have about 20 or more slaps ongoing. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we have three at OCCRP against us, but our partners, which make up OCCRP, it's over 35 now, you know, including 12 against our Serbian colleague, six against our Prague colleague. And, and in the Serbian colleague, uh, all 12 of them are by people closely associated with the president of Serbia, hmm. which includes both organized crime figures and businessmen and, they, and police officers. And they're, they're all suing them, um, you know, and, uh, and, and trying to drive them out of business. This is just what you have to deal with when you, when you take on people like this. Questions. If you have one, raise your hand. If you care to identify yourself, that's great. Keep your question brief and please make it a question. Um, let's start this lady right here. I'll ping back and forth, get in as many as we can, please. What happens when Putin dies? Um, well, it depends how he dies. Um, uh, <laughs> if he dies because um, there's been a massive uprising of um, people in Russia and they hang him from a tank the way they did Ceausescu, then Maybe Alexei Navalny becomes the next president of Russia. Um, if he dies in his sleep, that, so there, the, um, the, if he dies in his sleep, uh, then some other KGB thug takes over and it just goes the same way. And so everybody is hoping that he's sick and he's going to die and that's going to be the end of our problems and we can all hope and pray. First of all, he's probably not sick. If you, if you Google Putin cancer, you'll see the first article started showing up in 2013. Um, uh, it's, this, this rumor's been around for a long time. And, and, uh, and secondly, um, I mean, there's, there's a very good comparable. The um, uh, dictator of Uzbekistan, a guy named Karimov, um, who was like worse than Putin, who boiled his political opponents in oil, uh, in hot oil. Um, uh, one day he died of a stroke. And, um, and there was like three weeks of uncertainty, all the powers that be went into some building and then the black smoke came out. At the, uh, uh, and, and the head of the KGB became the new uh, uh, president of, of Uzbekistan. And, the, and then the bunch of think tanks said, there's great reform going on in Uzbekistan. The, the, the new guy is not boiling his opponents in oil. Um, uh, of course, he's just as bad as everybody else. And so I think that that's the, the more likely scenario unless there's a, a popular uprising. Yeah, so, um if Putin dies and the systems that he's using right now to launder money, to steal, are not changed, nothing will change. We've seen that with the Arab Spring. We've seen that with the fall of the communism. You know, people in these countries, in my country in Romania, after the fall of the communism, were really enthusiastic about the new systems, you know, there's freedom, but the power was still in the hands of the, of the old timers, of the communists, you know, of their offspring. So, because the system was not changed. It's, it's the same with the Arab Spring. You know, nothing really changed, and in some cases, things went for the worse because the system was not changed. Uh, yes, sir, right here. 
and then I'll work my way over to you in the front row here. Oh, hold on. Here we go. Is up. there any evidence that this type of activity goes on in China with Xi? China? So, 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 yeah. I mean, China is a very complex country. It's a series of kind of warlords who <laughs> kind of have control over different parts of the country. So it's, very, it's, it's hard to, to you know, um, uh, generalize. But, you know, uh, yes, Ch China is do doing business with a lot of other countries. And in their deals with them, if you look really closely, um, there's all sorts of payments going to offshore companies. A lot of it is moving money out of China. That's the big thing. Everybody's trying to get money out of China in a way that the Chinese government doesn't see because it's a pretty serious problem to do that. But, you know, um, the bigger problem is that, you know, China is going around and it's, it's loaning large amounts of money to countries that can't pay the money back and then connecting um, as collateral the, uh, the mineral assets of these countries. Um, and then they're, they're selling it all to JP Morgan, um, this debt, which you guys are all buying, and they're striping it the same way they did subprime mortgages. And we have about a 55 trillion sovereign debt problem that a lot of that money will never get paid back. Ghana tried to sell all its minerals in perpetuity forever. And what's happening is these people, uh, these, these, these corrupt dictators are coming in and buying Chinese they're getting Chinese loans um, and they're selling every asset they can to China and then they're getting kicked out and going to Paris and buying a nice house. And China is, is, um, is actually helping them steal the money um, in, in a lot of these cases as we've seen. And so it's, it's a real problem. We've also seen China helping Iran bypass sanctions, large scale, hundreds of billions that go from Iran in terms of petrol, oil, and they go to China, and then China is laundering the money for Iran. And so China is helping lots of, you know, these countries that are not respecting, abiding by the international law. And, and, and you know, Russia's sanction-busting plans in, certainly include China. So, you know. Uh, yes, ma'am, up here. And then we'll come back over here. So talking about sovereign debt, I read in the paper this morning that Russia has defaulted on its debt uh, today for the first time since like 1918 or something like that. Uh, Bill, you actually started uh, with uh, the question or the assertion that you think that he invaded um, Ukraine because of corruption. And so I wanted you to say more about that. Uh, I'd like to hear what your theory is because everything we're hearing in the news is more about, you know, um, it's more about theory. And then the second part of that is how does the Chinese uh, unbreakable relationship with Russia uh, actually play into this, given what you just said uh, about uh, the role China plays in terms of uh, facilitating corruption? So um, why, why does corruption lead to the war? Uh, because the money, that, the, the trillion dollars that was stolen from the Russian people should have been spent on hospitals on schools, on filling potholes in the roads, on public services for 141 million people has been spent on yachts, on planes, on villas in the south of France and on Swiss bank accounts for 1,000 people. And that may be a sustainable strategy in the short term, um, but in the long term, all those people who aren't getting those um, public services, um, whose lives are pretty miserable, um, get mad. And, um, and, you know, people say, well, Putin was, is a popular president. Uh, there's been a lot of popular presidents that um, have been overthrown in, in sp sort of spontaneous situations. In Tunisia, um, the, the whole Arab Spring, but Tunisia in particular, some fruit seller set himself on fire and then the whole government fell and led to the fall of Egypt and then the civil war in Syria. In Kazakhstan, in January of this year, the um, uh, dictator of Kazakhstan, who had been around for longer than Putin and stolen more money per capita than Putin, um, they raised the, the um, liquefied petroleum gas prices by 50%, and all of a sudden, everyone was burning buildings all over the country, and um, he ended up getting overthrown. And, and so Putin, he understands better than anybody um, that he, he, doesn't, well, he doesn't want to sit back and wait for it to happen. He understood that, that there's a 
<coughs> the old dictator's playbook. If you want to have your people not be mad at you, you've got to make them mad at somebody else. And so, um, you know, if you, if you listen to um, the, the learned political scientists, they'll tell you this is all about NATO expansion, about a Russian empire. They'll all have read Putin's speeches really carefully and tried to deconstruct what he said and say, you know, he warned us this was going to happen. All of his speeches are, are not written, he has no ideology whatsoever. A person who has ideology and, and public interest in mind doesn't steal a trillion dollars from their people. All these speeches have basically been put together for somebody else's consumption. It's not what, he, what Putin believes. Putin only just wants to stay in power. Why does he want to stay in power? Because if he's not in power, if he were, there's, there's no retirement for Vladimir Putin. He can't set up the Putin presidential library and, 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 and spend all his money. He will be put in jail, he will have his money taken away, and he'll be killed. This is a, a matter of survival for Vladimir Putin, and that's why he is at this war, and, and that's the only reason. And a quick crack at the second question, unbreakable relationship between China and Russia? Do you see it that way? What do well, we know? I, I, so, so, so um, no, it's, it's, the Chinese um, are only out for the Chinese, and so uh, there's no, uh, so if it helps the Chinese to weaken the Western alliance, that's helpful. Um, if it helps the Chinese to get cheap natural resources, that's helpful. But very interesting, the, the Russians were all expecting when, all the same, when Apple phones stopped being offered in Moscow that they would get Chinese, um, Huawei and all these other countries' phones. The Chinese don't want to be in violation of U.S. sanctions either, and the, and the amount of exports um, from China has actually gone down um, since this whole thing has started. And so I don't think it's an unbreakable relationship. I think the Chinese are, are opportunists and pragmatists, but at the same time, they don't want to be defined as the people supporting the war machine in Russia, because if they were, then we're, not, we're going to all start looking at our, our labels and say, I don't want to buy in China anymore. And, the, and it's uh, the rest of the world, they're a mercantilist country. The rest of the world is more important than, than Russia is to them. And so I think that they'll take advantage of the situation as best as they can. They'll play both different sides against the middle. They'll do plausibly deniable stuff. They'll buy Russian oil when no one knows, knows there's doing it. But I don't think there's an unbreakable relationship that's, I don't think there's any, they're locked at the arms as blood brothers looking mm -hmm. out for each other. This, I don't believe that that's the case at all. One last question. Uh, I'm gonna give it to the lady in the back right here. Thank you. Like him or not, Donald Trump went bankrupt a couple of times and uh, there was a connection to the Deutsche Bank that bailed him out from his bankruptcy. And then comes Manafort, who was also connected, as you probably know, to the Bank of Cyprus. And Manafort is working for him for free. Um, have you connected the dots? And Manafort was connected, as you know, to the Ukrainian oligarchs connected to Putin. Have you been able to uh, follow any data or data or connections on that one? <laughs> so, um, to, to, we, we, we don't have this, any smoking gun, if, if that's what you're looking for. I mean, I, I think everybody uh, is always, is, would love to get a hold of uh, all of Donald Trump's, you know, uh, you know records at, at Deutsche Bank. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, D Donald Trump was, he was criminal services. He built high-end apartments for, you know, Russian organized crime and other people. You know, that was his business. And Paul Manafort's in the same business. He, you know, was working for Yanukovych, who was, you know, Putin's man in, in Ukraine for a long time. And so, you know, these are, this is the criminal services industry, and they work for a lot of different people. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure there's any great grand conspiracy. There's just a lot of criminal services people out there, and they're the ones who introduce the organized crime figures to, you know, the politicians, to the other people um, in all these different countries. And that's how these relationships get built. And so you can't always assume that just because, you know, people, are, you know, have connections with these things. You really, you know, we, we base everything on on, you know, the transactions. We look at, you know, follow the money. And, and if you can't find the, the transaction, it may be hidden from you, um, or it may not be there. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you gotta be careful because a lot of this is politicized now. We've done stories on, you know, Hunter Biden. We've done stories on Donald Trump. We've done stories on everybody. But it all comes down to where's the money going? Who's getting it? Who's benefiting? You know, as, has a crime been committed? 
Well, I think you're going to send us all out into the night incredibly depressed. No, 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 no. We do children's no, parties no, too, actually. by the way. So. <laughs> but very grateful for your work and that people are out there fighting the good fight. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Bill Browder is the founder and CEO of Hermitage Capital Management. He was the largest foreign investor in Russia until 2005, when he was denied entry for exposing corruption, which he recounts in his 2015 New York Times bestseller, Red Notice. Drew Sullivan is co-founder, editor, and publisher of the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. Before that, he founded and ran the Center for Investigative Reporting in Bosnia and reported for the Tennessean and the Associated Press. Under his direction, OCCRP has won more than 100 investigative journalism awards, including the European Press Prize, IRE Award, and the Global Shining Light. Paul Radu is the co-founder and chief of innovation at the OCCRP, where he leads investigative projects and develops new strategies and technology to expose organized crime and corruption. He also co-created the investigative dashboard and co-founded the RISE project in Romania and is an Ashoka Global Fellow and a board member of the Global Investigative Journalism Network. Mary Louise Kelly is a co-host of NPR's All Things Considered and was previously a national security correspondent for NPR News, reporting on the CIA, the NSA, terrorism, war, and rising nuclear powers. She's also written for The Atlantic, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and others, and is the author of two novels and a forthcoming memoir. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you're listening. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening.